Together with our differences Together we are bolder, braver, stronger
Make your way in. We're going to start in just a minute. It's good to see everybody this morning. Welcome. We praise God for uh, beautiful weather, and most importantly for a brand new day of life. It's a uh, day that the Lord has given us, and so we want to um, we want to treasure it as a gift from Him, and so. Uh, I thank you for setting aside some time to join us here at Trinity Bible Church this morning to worship and honor God together. We're going to do that in many ways. We're going to do that through worshiping God in music in just a moment, something that we love to do here at Trinity. We're going to worship God by opening his word to see what he has to say to us this morning, because we know that, as James tells us, we are to be not only hearers or readers of the word, but doers of the word. And so it's important that we always dive deep into the scriptures, but then to see how it is that uh, they apply to our lives uh, today. And uh, we're going to worship God by giving, by fellowship, and through prayer. Uh, And so uh, again, glad that you chose to join us this morning, and of course, we do not believe that God does anything accidentally, amen, and so uh, by his uh, divine um, appointing, we are here this morning together, and so I would just pray that you would be willing to allow the Lord to speak to you this morning, as he knows each of us uh, better than we know ourselves, and so there's a reason that we are all here this morning. And uh, I pray that that will become more and more evident as we move through our time together this morning. And so, as I usually do, I'd like to begin by reading uh, from the Word of God as our call to worship. And then when I'm done reading, we'll stand and pray together and sing songs of praise to Him to begin our, our time. And so here's what it says, the reading that I've chosen for this morning. And this is from... Uh, Psalm chapter 9, as many of you know, the Psalms are songs. It's the, the hymnal, the songbook of the Jewish people. And um, the Hebrews who wrote these Psalms, many of them by King David himself, uh, they would use these in their gatherings, much like we do. And they would use these songs, these ancient hymns, uh, to help them praise God, to be reminded of who they are, and who God is. And uh, that's where it all starts, right? About who God is. And so uh, we are reminded in Psalm chapter 9, in just the first two verses, it says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name most high. We're reminded to do three things, to give thanks to God, to remember all of the wonderful things that he has done for us, and to be glad in that as we are thankful and be glad. It says that we are to sing praises to his name, for he is most high. So let's stand together and pray now 
and enter into a time of worship through song. Father, again, we are grateful for a new day of life. We're grateful for an opportunity to just come before you as we are. You don't um, ask us to bring anything, for there's nothing that we can bring. But you have done all for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. So it's in his name that we say thank you, as the psalm reminds us to do. It's in the name of Jesus that we praise you, and we also recognize it is in that powerful and wonderful and majestic name of Jesus that we find life and reconciliation and redemption in you, Father God. And so now we offer this time up to you as we sing songs and join our voices and our hearts together. May the music stir our spirit and our soul, and may the words, the lyrics of these songs, and the truth that they proclaim sink deep into our hearts. God, have your way with us this morning, but now we surrender ourselves to you in worship. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's sing together and worship him.
worthy. He is worthy. Amen. Say good morning to somebody next to you. Praise the Lord. This is for the new romance. Singing for the left in vain. Overcame. It's not too late. Hey man, yep, let's do it. Together we are bolder, braver, stronger. All right, if we can make our way back to our seats. Uh, we're going to open the Word of God together in just a minute. And um, the, uh, the kids' classes are beginning, so they made their way uh, down the hall. And so we appreciate them. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big part of what we do as we pursue discipleship here is is um, encouraging and challenging the next generation uh, of, uh, of people here at Trinity to, uh, to learn, to grow, and to serve, and to follow Jesus Christ. And so we're grateful for those involved in the kids' ministry. And just uh, have a, a few words of church life, our announcements, to get caught up where we are before we uh, open God's Word together. And one of those is about the kids' ministry. And so, as you've been hearing, for the last couple of weeks, there is a uh, a pool party today, uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say end of summer, because that's kind of sad. It's the, we're not at the end of summer just yet, that's yeah, right. But it's, uh, it's just a, a way to, to, to continue uh, fellowship and community within the, the Trinity Kids Ministry. And so, as you've been hearing, uh, it is at the Curiali's house uh, right here in, in, uh, in Brick. And so, uh, if any of the kids um, or parents that are here, I should say, and you weren't aware of it or you weren't sure, um, you can just let her know or let Cheryl know uh, after service, 
um, that uh, you're going to be going. There's a bunch of kids already registered to go, but they just wanted to, to get an idea of who is coming. And so that is today, uh, right after service. So they'll be having a great time. Praise God for great weather, uh, uh, you know, for that. And so we're thankful. Um, now, a few other things to get caught up on. Um, just a reminder that um, on September 4th and 11th, uh, there's two Sundays in a row, we're going to have one of our missionary families here, the Lathams. And so Shane and Erin Latham, their kids are adults, they won't be joining us, but Shane and Erin Latham, who are missionaries in Brazil that uh, a bunch of us uh, visited a few years ago, we went on a missions trip there. They are here in the States for a while, and um, they will be joining us. So they'll actually be here for about two weeks, uh, and uh, they'll be here for two of those Sundays, and Shane will be uh, sharing the, the message on one of those Sundays as well. And so just wanted to remind you of that as we pray for all of our missionaries. Their, their information is out by our missions map. You can get an idea of where they are and what they're about, what organization they're with. But we praise God for the Lathams. It'll be really good to see them. It's been a while since they've been here. But you can be praying for safe travels for them and We'll all get an opportunity to enjoy some fellowship and get to catch up with them. And uh, so they just have such a heart for seeing churches uh, just grow and grow healthy, you know, from the inside out. And so we're going to be really blessed to have them here. Uh, and we want to bless them, but it will certainly be a blessing to us. So that's at the uh, end, of, end of August, beginning of September, that they'll be around. Um, I had a few people recently in the last two weeks um, approach me about baptism, and so shortly we'll be having another Baptism Sunday, and so uh, if you are interested, if this is something that perhaps you've been thinking about, kicking around between you and the Lord, and, and uh, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, you have not yet been baptized, then please see me. You can email me, you can text me, see me after service, uh, however you want to get in touch with me, but just putting the word out. Of course, we would love to do baptisms. We do it all year round. There's not specific Sundays we do it, but there's been some interest recently, and so um, we, uh, we can have everybody get baptized on the same day, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, but I just wanted to remind you that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, Jesus does say that we are to be baptized, and he modeled that for us. And uh, baptism is very simply an outward expression a very powerful symbolic expression that Christ gives us of a change that has already happened on the inside. And, uh, but it's very powerful for the individual and for the church itself as we get to witness and be a part of that. So keep that in mind. If you have not yet been baptized and you're interested, uh, please see me and reach out. Um, and uh, two other quick things. And then we'll get started into uh, our study of First Peter. So uh, if you remember, um, last few years, I've been recording a podcast with a couple of other local pastors, uh, Pastor Dave Berkey from the Allenwood Church right down the uh, road, and Pastor Mike Morgan of Shiloh Baptist Church uh, right there in downtown Manasquan. And uh, we took a break for a little bit while I was uh, home on a leave of absence taking care of my dad, but we have started recording again. It's called So What? The podcast, and the idea is that we take a portion of Scripture, we go through a, a, um, a Scripture reading app, it's called Read Scripture, and uh, every week we choose the, the reading for a particular day, and we flesh it out, but what we do is 
We prepare a week ahead of time, and then we live out a challenge that the Holy Spirit gives us that comes from the Word of God from that week's reading. And then in our podcast, we share about how that challenge went for us and how we did it, and then we give that challenge to you, the listeners. And so it's just about 20 to 30 minutes long each podcast, and so we're starting to record, and so you'll you'll see those. I'll, I'll begin posting them shortly onto our website. We have a podcast page on our website, and you'll find the link there, but it's called So What? The Podcast. And I just wanted to let you know that we started recording, and I tell you, it is a, it's a blessing. It's a blessing not only because of um, you know, because of the challenge that we get to live out and flesh out God's word together uh, in community, individuals and in community, but it's a real blessing to me to have this continued uh, fellowship with some local pastors where we get together and uh, we challenge one another and uh, to continue to be good shepherds and to stay in God's word and uh, to learn and to grow and to serve ourselves as an we, uh, we come back to our congregations and want to, uh, to love all of you and continue to lead all of you. So it's a real blessing for me. So be looking for more info on that, So What, the podcast, and you'll see some past episodes on our website as well. Okay, last announcement. So today we are finishing our study in First Peter. So we're in chapter 5. It's uh, the last verses. It's First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. So we'll be concluding... First Peter, but our series, right, is in First and Second Peter. Uh, there's going to be a break in between these two books. So we finish up First Peter today, and then uh, in a few weeks, we'll be getting Second Peter. We'll do that. It's a little bit shorter book, and we're going to do those books. There's going to be a, a break in between, and I'll explain to you a little bit why. Next Sunday, which is August 21st, we will have a, a fall preview Sunday. And what that means is I'm going to uh, just bring a special message. It's going to be focused on discipleship because it is our theme for this year where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, you are to deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. And as you remember, maybe you don't remember, but uh, a number of months ago, about four or five months ago, before I took that leave of absence from you, um, I had started to, to offer teasers and hints at something that was coming. It was supposed to be in the spring, but now it's going to be a, um, a launch in the fall. And it is all about the discipleship pathway. This is not an event and it's not a program. It is going to be a tool that we are going to be able to use going forward as a church to help us all stay connected to the Lord Jesus on the path of being a follower following Jesus on the way. Do you know that the earliest sort of name for the early Christian church was simply the way? You know, and then they became known as Christians, but they were simply known as the way. It was the way of Jesus. And so our focus this year is about discipleship. I've talked a lot about it in our study of First Peter. But what we're going to do is next Sunday, and I won't spend too much more time on it now, but we're going to have a fall preview. I'm going to share a little bit more about the launch of this tool. It is sort of like a structure around which we can base our church and our uh, pursuit of being disciples, because we often talk about learning and growing and serving. Those are our core values. This discipleship pathway 
will be a tool that I believe will become a part of the culture and the DNA here at Trinity. It will be a way for all of us to keep each other accountable and for all of us to be accountable before the Lord Jesus and how we live out being Christians. And it's simply a pathway that gives designated steps. It's not linear, because we do this all sort of in our, our own way as the Spirit leads, but there are specific things that the Scriptures themselves show us through Jesus and the apostles about how to be a disciple. And there are 12 steps or 12 marks or 12 um, points that we are all to be continually throughout our journey with Christ focusing on to make sure that we are living it out. And so this tool, uh, which I'm going to uh, unveil to you a little bit more next week, I think will be an integral part of Trinity. So I'm going to talk a lot about that next week, but included in that, I will give you a preview of some new ministries that will beginning, uh, be beginning in the middle and end of September as we kick off the fall together. So new classes, new groups, uh, new opportunities to get together based on uh, different topics and um, where we are in life situations. Uh, and so there'll be a lot more. So make sure that you're here next week, if you possibly can be. If not, join us online. Uh, just go to our website, trinityallenwood.com, and click Watch Live. Make sure that you watch us. If you have to miss it, go back and, uh, and check it out. So I'm going to be giving a lot of information to help us prepare for the fall uh, this uh, season at Trinity and all that is in store, but specifically focusing on the discipleship pathway. And so I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. And so again, today we're finishing First Peter, and then next week we'll do our fall preview, and then there'll be a, a few weeks of uh, topical um, uh, messages based upon that, and we'll have Shane Latham here to bring one of those messages as well. Uh, and then soon after that, we will do a series on discipleship as we launch our discipleship pathway. And then once we do that, uh, we'll get back into Second Peter, okay? You'll hear much more about that next week. And so please, in your Bibles, you can open up to First um, Peter. It's chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. It'll be up on the screen for you in just a moment. Um, and uh, you can follow along in the Bibles in front of you or your Bible app on your phone, however it is that you read God's Word these days. <clears throat> Bill W., as he was known, Bill Wilson, as we know him, was one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was the one that came up with the 12 steps that are very familiar to many of us from Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, and many other recovery-type programs and ministries where there are steps, and many of them use 12 as a number, 12 steps, in helping us on the road to recovery. But one of those steps in these 12 steps, step number seven, simply says that we are to humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings or our faults and our failures. Bill W. says this, the attainment of greater humility is the foundation principle of each of AA's 12 steps. Humility is that key word in step seven, but Bill W. says that humility is the foundational principle for all of the other 11 steps. 
In November of 1934, Bill Wilson was visited by an old drinking companion. And Wilson was astounded to find that he had been sober for several weeks under the guidance of the evangelical Christian group that this friend had become a part of. So Bill took some interest in this group, but he quickly found out that he could not do it on his own. And so he again was admitted to the hospital to recover from a bout of drinking. And this was by that time his fourth stay at a hospital, and he was beginning to show signs of delirium and tremors. So he sought more help. But early one evening, Bill's friend had visited him, this same friend who had said that they had found help in God. And this friend tried to persuade him to turn himself over to the care of the true God, the God of the Bible, who could liberate him from his dependency on alcohol. And according to Bill Wilson, while lying in bed depressed and in utter despair, he cried out to God, God, I'll do anything, anything at all. If you are there, show yourself to me. Immediately, he claims he had an experience of great peace and serenity that washed over him that he couldn't even fully explain. From that moment on, he never took another drink for the remainder of his life. In his book, Humilitas, John Dixon says this about Jesus and humility. What established humility as a virtue in Western culture was not Jesus' persona exactly, or even his teaching, but rather it was his execution, or more correctly, his followers' attempt to come to grips with his execution. Crucifixion was the ancient world's ultimate punishment. It was reserved for political rebels and slaves. And of all the methods of capital punishment, Crucifixion was regarded as the most shameful and most brutal. This is the death that the followers of Jesus saw their master face. The greatest man they had ever known was brought down to the lowest place the Roman's world, the Roman world could envisage. Death by crucifixion. For them, the crucifixion was not evidence of Jesus' humiliation but proof that greatness can express itself in humility. The noble choice to lower yourself for the sake of others. See, back in the ancient world at that time, humility was frowned upon. It was what John Dixon calls a honor-shame culture, where the greatest thing to attain to was honor. Honor for yourself, honor for your family. And the opposite of that was shame, if you brought shame upon yourself or your family. And he goes on to say that Jesus came to break down that wall, to break down that divide, that understanding, that world and personal view. But he claims that, and he goes on to say, it wasn't necessarily just Jesus' teaching or his person, his persona, but ultimately it was Jesus' crucifixion. Why? because it was the ultimate act of humility that he would die for someone else. 
And that was practically unheard of in the world in which Jesus lived. Like everything else, Jesus came and turned everything upside down, including the ancient world understanding of humility. But as he says in that last sentence, it wasn't the humiliation of Christ. It was Christ's humility. See, we might often get those two words mixed up, that we feel like if we're going to be humble, that we're going to be humiliated. Other people will make fun of us and look down on us and think that we are weak. But Jesus teaches us just the opposite. He says, humility is the greatest sign of strength. But that doesn't seem like it it goes together, does it? But Jesus teaches us, and, and his disciples teach us in the word of God that if we are to be strong, and if we are to be confident in the Lord God, then we are to be humble. It's a key word in our passage today. In fact, as Peter wraps up his letter to the persecuted church, this letter of 1 Peter we've been looking at, as he wraps up his words of encouragement and challenge to these Christians who are trying to follow Jesus in a hostile world, much like we are today, he chooses to talk to them about humility. It's the last main theme that he gives to them, that they are to remain humble before God and before others, but out of that humility comes hope. Those are two words for this morning, church. Humility that leads to hope. And so in a minute, I will read to you that passage. But see, Peter is concluding these words. Why? Because Peter wants believers to understand, the persecuted believers of that day and us this morning, that humility is an attitude of the heart, not just an empty outward expression. I think we've all experienced dealing with people who are giving a false sense of humility. It's like the person that says, I'm the most humble person I know. (laughs) But see, Peter wants us to understand that humility is the key to living the victorious Christian life. So you'll see in our passage that I'll read in a second that he talks about being victorious over things like anxiety, things that can trip us up and hold us back from following God, those things that keep getting to us and holding us down. But also humility is the key to not overcoming things like anxiety, but overcoming our adversary, the devil, he calls him, by standing firm. But see, standing firm and standing strong in the faith is not about self-reliance. It's, it's where our natural minds go, but Jesus, again, teaches us just the opposite. Humility comes from realizing you can do nothing on your own, that you are helpless and hopeless without God. That is where humility starts and ends. So Peter is trying to sum up this letter to give them one last push and to tell them that if they are to have hope in the midst of trial, that they are to understand the vitality of humility. For the Christian, victory in the battle comes by standing firm in humility 
as we raise the white flag of surrender. Not to surrender to the enemy. He tells us to stand strong in the face of the enemy, but to raise the white flag before the throne of God to tell him that we are helpless without him, to recognize that we cannot pull ourselves up by the bootstraps as that colloquialism goes, but we are helpless without God. That it is by his strength and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can only live the victorious Christian life. Victory over addictions like alcoholism and, and struggles with depression and anxiety, with things like managing our anger and our thoughts of hopelessness and everything else that we hear in this church, individuals, what we represent, the things we struggle with. Peter is saying it all starts with humility. It's a great picture of how it was in the ancient worlds and even throughout the Middle Ages when you had kingdoms and kings upon this earth and people would come into the throne room of the king and how would they approach them? They were reminded by the king's servants as they came in, you are to bow before the king, to lay yourself down before the king because it was a sign of humility before the one you were recognizing that had power over your very life. It was this simple act that they would lay down their shield and sword and they would simply bow. If they weren't on the ground, they would bow their heads. Why? They were exposing their necks to the king as if to say, my very life is yours. You can behead me if you want. I am completely vulnerable before you. It's a posture of vulnerability. It was an act of humility, but it had to start with the heart. It was before the king who had complete power and control and reign in that kingdom and over his servants. But see, that is the posture, the attitude that we are to approach our God with because our God is king and our God is sovereign and reigns supreme over this universe and he wants to for all believers in jesus christ to reign in your heart but see we have to allow him to do it when you become a christian did you become perfect all those who became perfect raise your hand right but the idea is we are to attempt to attain that because jesus requires perfection but see the whole point is we can never do it we can never become holy on our own. It's only by the covering of the blood of Christ. See, because he was the perfect sacrifice, the one, the lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who would take away the sins of the world, the one who was perfect, the only one who lived a sinless life. That's why he was the only one that could have gone to the cross. The ultimate act of humility. But see, we are to follow in his footsteps. So when Jesus says, our theme for this year, if you want to be my disciple, which means a learner or follower, then you are to deny yourself, act of humility, take up your cross, act of humility, and follow me, act of humility. Because not following yourself or your own desires, but to follow him. Jesus Christ's way is the way of the cross. It's the way of surrender. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of dying to oneself. Jesus actually died a physical death on a physical cross for us. 
the ultimate act of humility. So the passage today talks about how we are to seek humility if we are to ultimately find hope. And that is in any time in place or season in our lives, but especially when we are going through trials, tribulations, and persecution for our faith. So here's what it says in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, finishing up this book, starting in verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here we go. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And his final greetings. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends your greetings. And so does Mark, my son, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Humility. We are to be humble before God. <laughs> he talks about the grace to be humble. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting the Psalms there, Psalm 3, verse 34. So he's quoting that Old Testament, I believe it's actually in Proverbs, but he talks about grace to the humble. See, because the point Peter is making is that God opposes the proud. So in a way, what we're being told here is what is the opposite of humility? It is pride. It is pride that will trip us up. Pride is the basest form of all of our sin. It was pride that led Adam and Eve to sin. It is pride that is in our hearts, not only born with it, but leads us to be disobedient to God. It is pride that tells us, God, we can do this on our own. God, we can handle it. God, I'll let you take care of these parts of my life, but over here, I think I want to stay in control because I think I know what's best. That's kind of the way we approach him. See, pride in many ways is the opposite of humility. So we are called to be humble before God. And God will oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. 
We are to be full of humility towards each other and toward God. But why? Two different relationships, right? The two main relationships in our lives are relationship with God or relationship with others, the only kind of relationship she can have. It starts with our relationship with God, that we are to be humble before God, because then he gives grace to the humble. But we are to be gracious and humble towards each other. See, previously, Peter had been talking about submission before those in authority. Remember, submission uh, to those at work, right, that are authority over you. Submission in the home between husbands and wives. Submission between children and parents. Slaves and masters. He was talking all about this. Now, finally, he's wrapping it all up, and he's saying, be humble before God. Be humble before your God and be humble before others. Why? Because you cannot face the battle alone. That's the point he's trying to make. It's not of your own strength because humility starts with surrender. So he gives a couple of examples and he talks about anxiety in verse 7. He talks about anxiety. He talks about the younger being subject to the older as an act of humility. He talks about humbling humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God in verse 6. And then verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Why does Peter say that? All of a sudden he's talking about anxieties? He's simply making a point. See that if you're going to be humble before God and before others, you are simply recognizing, church, that you cannot fight the battle on your own. So he's saying, as an example, if you're feeling anxious, remember these Christians he was writing to, in context, they were very anxious because they were being persecuted for their faith. So he says, take those anxieties and cast them upon God because you can't do it on your own. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says it this way, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, saying don't be anxious about anything. Just give it all to God in prayer is what he's saying saying, cast all your anxieties on him because he does care for you. You know, isn't it true, church, that when we're going through something, any kind of trial in our life, we start to feel like God doesn't care. Boy, if God really cared for me, like I'm being told at church or like the Bible says it, why would God allow me to go through this? I think we've learned enough in First Peter that perhaps we're going through it because God cares for us. He disciplines those he loves. He wants to bring glory to himself through our sufferings, ultimately that is God's choice. But what is our very simple call and our response? What's our motivation and what's our response? Think of those two things for a second. What's our motivation in doing anything? And then what's our response when somebody does something to us? It should be humility. It should be humility. It is what Jesus modeled for us. He goes on to say, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? So he talked about anxiety. Now he gives another example because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy. 
And Peter is likening him to a lion, a roaring lion. See, normally lions don't roar until after they have killed their prey. It doesn't kind of make sense for them, right? As they're sneaking up to let out a big roar, I think that's kind of uh, <laughs> going against them, right? It's not what we see on the Nature Channel, right? They're very stealthy. You know, when, when our dog wants to play and she has her favorite ball and she wants us to throw it, she'll drop it. And then she kind of sneaks around the coffee table and she's looking at us like, like a prowling lion. It's very funny because she's only this big. And it's just like, we're just like, you're no lion, but she's just like ready to pounce, right? It's like she's sneaking around. She doesn't want her presence to be known. And then we throw the ball and she'll run and get it. But it's this idea, but Peter then says that our adversary, the devil, Satan he's also called in scripture, is prowling around the whole world like a roaring lion. He is in a way, Peter is saying, letting his presence be known. Now, yes, he's a deceiver. And he's one who wants to cloak himself. and He can appear as an angel of light, Scripture says. But yet Peter is describing him as a roaring lion, one that we first should take seriously, because if there's a lion and he's roaring, I think we take it seriously. But we are to realize that we have an enemy who wants to devour. See, Jesus makes it clear, and this is a sober reminder, church, that we have an enemy Peter calls him our adversary. We all have an adversary. We're talking about spiritually here, spiritual warfare. We go into spiritual warfare, spiritual battle every day, and Peter is saying, look, my last words to you, approach the battle with the adversary with all humility. It doesn't mean we let him take control. It means we stand firm and we watch what God will do. Hmm. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter twenty, verse seventeen. Jehoshaphat, who was the king at the time, the king of Judah, he is facing potential annihilation by an enemy. And they go before God and they plead with God for help and listen to what they are told. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Great picture. He doesn't say go charging into battle. In this case, he's saying to the king, he's saying, stand firm, Hold your position, stand before God, be confident, and watch what God does on your behalf. But see, in order to get to that place where we allow God, through his Holy Spirit, to fight our battles for us, to help us overcome those things in life that we struggle against, he says it starts with humility. It's about standing firm and watching what God does. Now, you know, you, you've heard for years that, that if you're uh, out in the wilderness and there's a bear, that you see a bear, or maybe you're out in the jungle and you see a lion, that you're not supposed to run, but what's the first thing you want to do? Run. Supposedly, you're supposed to stand and maybe not make eye contact, but to stand firm and be confident, right? It's kind of like that. A roaring lion is coming at you, and Peter's saying, stand firm. God tells us in Second Chronicles, 
Chapter 20 there, verse 17, stand firm, watch what God will do. Why? It's the ultimate act of humility, because you are giving up complete control, what you can do on your own, and saying, God, you're going to have to do this for me. Show me the way. Give me the tools. Right at the end of Ephesians, we're given that armor of God. It's that defensive armor we are to put on, because we know the adversary is going to attack, going to shoot those fiery darts, it says, but we are to put on that armor and to stand firm, to stand firm. But we are to stand in humility saying, God, you got this, because I am helpless without you. The greatest act of humility, can I read to you in our, minute, our last few minutes together, I want to read to you um, this passage from Philippians. It's Philippians chapter 2. It, it won't be up on the screen, but you can listen or, or read along in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I think it's the, probably the greatest treatise on, on humility, the greatest um, description of the humility of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. This is the Apostle Paul trying to encourage the church in Philippi. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The humility of Christ is our supreme example of how we are to be humble. For Paul tells us in these powerful words that Jesus was so humble, he exemplified humility perfectly that he did not even consider equality with God something to be grasped, which means, of course, he knew he was God, God and human at the same time. He knew he was God but he did not even try to grasp and hold on to that deity so that he could escape the crucifixion of the cross. That's how humble he was. Paul says he was humble, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? As I said earlier, because the cross, crucifixion on the cross, at that time in the Roman world was known as the greatest symbol of shame. And that's what Jesus chose to give us the greatest example of humility, the cross of Christ. And then therefore, again, 
as his followers. Once you believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation, you choose to be a disciple, a follower, and Jesus then says to us all, okay, you want to be my disciple? You are now saved in me. Your salvation is secure and eternal. Now, do you want to follow me for the rest of your life? This is how you do it. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. That's going to take humility, because that's hard work. That takes self-sacrifice. And see, humility, humility is not that we don't think anything of ourselves. We think of ourselves less, is the way it said. It's not being down on yourself. It's about thinking lowly of yourself, but there's a big difference. It's about putting others first. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's who do you put first if you're here and you're married. It goes for any relationship, but if you're married, you're in a relationship. You think of yourself more, do you think of your spouse more? You put them first. You see the beauty of it in that relationship is that if you're putting them first and they're putting your first, you, yourself first, then you're doing what God has called you to do. You're being humble and your needs are being met. They're thinking of you, you're thinking of them. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's humility. And boy, doesn't marriage teach us humility? <laughs> Amen, brother. It does. But I'll end with this. Peter talks about humility. But then he says to us in the remaining verses, 10 to 14, won't reread it, but he talks about humility then leading to hope. And look at what he says in this great, in verse 10, and I'm just going to focus on this uh, to conclude. And after you have suffered a little while, remember Peter has been talking all about suffering. So after you had suffered a little while, it's not permanent. The God of all grace, there's that word grace again. It's only by the grace of God. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, and he gives us four things. Let's end with these four things. He will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And therein we find hope. We can rest in the confidence that we have as we hope in the Lord. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After a little while, which means we will endure suffering, but he will provide. One, he says, he will restore. And as we read these things, just remember, it's all by the grace of God, because Peter wants us to understand grace more and walk in grace more steadily and walk farther by his grace and further in his grace. But here in this verse, he says, restore. What does it mean to be restored? It means that God will mend us. He will perfect us. He will complete us. It's being perfected by fire. It's repairing what is broken. It is making all things new. God restores us. Ezekiel 36 says it this way, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It is God restoring us in relationship with him. And we can have joy in that restoration. Psalm 51, 12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me, or uphold me with a willing spirit. God is a God of restoration. Do you believe that, church? 
He's a God of restoration, so he will restore us, Peter says. Restoring that divine relationship. It means he's not done working on us yet. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But we need to suffer for a little while. But then it says he'll confirm us. A confirmation. It's, it's like this. It's picturing what God said at the beginning of all things in Genesis chapter 1. He, 1 and 2, he created all things. And at the end of it, it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. It's confirmation. And I think part of that confirmation is a Sabbath rest. God exemplified rest when he instituted the Sabbath, that seventh day, to rest. And he said, what are we to do in our rest? It's not just physical rest. God didn't need that. But it was about resting in what he had done. So on that day of rest, it's why we come here together on the first day of the week, right? We come together to be restored and to be confirmed being reminded that God has done so much for us and we can rest in that. We look back on the week prior and say, God, look at all the blessings. Take a moment on every Sunday, see what God did throughout the week, and then we pray, God, do some more this week. I just want to be humble before you. God will restore us. He will confirm. It's almost like this. It means that we are ready to go, ready for the next steps. He restores us. And then he confirms us. It's like setting a firm foundation saying, I'm preparing you now for what's next. So he restores, he confirms. Then it says he will strengthen us, but only after we suffer for a little while. Strengthen is pretty clear, right? It's about a spiritual exercise and discipline, working out our faith. It's about growing. When we say learn and grow and serve, it's that growth part that we're getting spiritually healthy, being, begin using what he has restored and confirmed. It's like restores the lifting up and the confirmation is setting us right, getting us ready to go, right? And then the strength is like, now nah, you're gonna do it. Isaiah 40 says it this way. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even young people shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. But it's only through the strength of the Lord and not of ourselves. But yet we need to suffer for a little while. And the last one, establish. He restores us, confirms us, he will strengthen us, and he will establish us. This is why we can have hope. And establish us, I think it means this, striving, taking bigger steps. He restores us, he confirms us, sets our steps. He strengthens us, puts us into motion, so we're growing spiritually, and then we get established, we're striving and taking bigger and bigger steps in our faith walk in him. Psalm 37, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. We are to rely on it. It's like hitting our stride. It's moving from just surviving spiritually to thriving in your relationship with God. It's about 
being on the solid foundation as he confirms us, and then sinking those roots deep into our walk with God and our relationship with him. But yet we need to suffer for a little while. Church, let's stand and close in prayer as we are reminded that Peter tells us as he wraps up this letter to the persecuted ones, the scattered ones, the ones who are dispersed, who are suffering, being persecuted their faith by the, for their faith like we are today. And he says, boy, we have the God of all grace. And these are the things God will do for us, restore us and confirm us and strengthen us and establish us, but only if we approach him and others in all humility. We're going to pray and then we're going to leave this place. Leave this place, even as we talk to each other and have some more fellowship, praying, church, praying for you and for each other that we would walk in humility, following the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of the denial of self, being humble before our King. Father God, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we know that your word, as it says, will not return void, which means, God, that your word is always powerful and it will work in our lives. And I pray that, God. I pray for each of us here. I pray, Father God, for this church that we would continue to stand firm on the foundation of your word that teaches us all these things. But Lord, as we go, help us to be humble, Lord God. Help us to be humble people because we can't do it on our own. We know it's about obedience, it's about surrender, it's about recognizing we have a problem first and foremost, and that you are the only one that can fix it, that we are helpless to do it on our own. Father, may we go in that attitude and spirit of humility from this place. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us and grant us the strength and the courage to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Praise the Lord.